0: They could have accommodated to win pro, uh, Rome's approval, but they resisted that. They could have isolated to preserve their own sense of unique identity, and they didn't do that either. Instead, they immersed themselves in the culture without drowning in it. They adapted without becoming captive.
1: Taste and See. This is a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. Season 4. The church is dying. Or is it?
2: Well, welcome. We are back with episode 8 of season 4 of the Taste and See podcast. I'm Ted Wieste, director of the Spiritual Formation Society. I'm here with my... Good friend, Gray Ewing.
1: Yeah, I'm Gray Ewing. Happy to be here talking with you, Ted, and Jerry today. I'm the pastor of Ascension Church of Phoenix in the central area of Phoenix.
2: As a reminder, as though by, you know, podcast eight, you need a reminder. Right. Uh, In this season of the podcast, we've been exploring this statement slash question, the church is dying, or is it? And we're asking those that question, having conversations. We've had some great conversations so far, and, and today we're really looking forward to a conversation with Jerry Sitzer. I I first came across uh, Jerry's work through a book called Water from a Deep Well, and uh, it's a it's a book that I actually assigned to uh, some seminary students um, when I was teaching formation classes, and uh, it was always um, a real blessing. in that that context. I'm really grateful. So, uh, Jerry, welcome. So glad that you're with us. Uh, Thank you, Ted and Gray. Nice to meet both of you and to join you
1: today. Yeah, so we've been looking at this theme of the church is dying. I wanted to say real quick, too, I don't think it'll translate, but there is a nail gun uh, being used in our church right now. Our church is under construction right now. So if you hear anything in the background, that's what it is. And then I was thinking about it, Ted, and it's like, this is It's kind of a perfect metaphor, right? The church under construction, uh, you know, my church is literally redoing its sanctuary as we speak right now, and so that's a fitting metaphor for, you know, the church, working on the church, I guess, in a way.
2: Yeah, it feels like there's some remodeling
1: happening in a lot of the church right now. And for the rest of the season, we're just going to extend that metaphor until it's completely uh, used up and tired. (laughs) Hey we're we're so glad you're listening with us today. As you know by this point in episode 8, we have a a way of of being together which includes a meal and we really get that from Jesus himself uh, where he makes breakfast uh, for his disciples on the beach and it has been important to Ted and I as we've led these uh, seasons of Taste and See Podcast to make sure that we have space for eating together and being together as well as recording a podcast. And the the idea is that Jesus is inviting us into more than just an intellectual conversation, more than just a, you know, series of action steps, more than just a repair, you know, repair project to the church. He's inviting us into a deep relationship and a table that's spread before us. And so every week we like to have a meal. This, this season we're looking at breakfast because breakfast is never a bad idea. Uh, and so we like to share what we're eating this morning. Jerry, why don't you go first? What, what are you eating for breakfast this morning? I am
0: drinking a green smoothie that I just made before I came online. We, uh, my wife and I have green smoothies virtually every morning, once in a while not. Sometimes we have eggs over spinach, but uh, most of the time we've got green smoothies, so it's uh, spinach and uh, kale, and then we usually, but not always add some peanut butter and protein powder. Uh, we'll either use blueberries or rasp or strawberries or both occasionally raspberries that are not as good. And uh, <laughs> not as sweet as we'll, blueberries. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if it's blueberries, I'll use some chocolate uh, protein powder. And then we use oat milk and a little bit of, uh, of um, um, water. Most of the berries are frozen. Some are fresh. So it's, uh, it's really good.
1: <laughs> you come here for the spiritual discussions, but you stay for the, uh, the recipes that we give out. <laughs> it's I, great.
2: I know as you, as you share that Jerry, I think yeah. we need to, we need to put that recipe in the show notes so that yeah. people can,
1: can, uh, can have a Jerry, a, sm- a Jerry smoothie. Yeah, yeah. It sounds so good. It does sound good.
2: <laughs> it
0: actually is good. The kids like it too. My grandkids that is, but, but uh, that's what keeps my wife and me going till lunch Mm. yeah anyway
1: coffee
2: every morning
1: there you go there you go can't live without it
2: and and jerry we were we were possibly going to record this podcast last week but you had grandkids in town can you tell me a little bit about grandkids and family and all that Uh, I'll give you the short version of our our
0: story. I I actually lost my first wife in 1991 and a child in that same accident. I raised three kids. 20 years later, I remarried Patricia. I've known her for many, many years. In fact, she knew my first wife, and she she has two daughters, and they were very good friends with my two sons. So it's a little unusual. So we have five children between the two of us, and uh, all five are married. And if you put the five kids and their spouses, we have 10 children all between the ages of 32 and 39. Wow. Uh, we have 11 grandchildren, and as you can imagine, they're all the same age, too. Actually, two of them are older. They're 10 and 8. Uh, the other nine are five and under. Wow. So it's crazy <laughs> land. The other fun thing is that all the kids were scattered for years, they lived elsewhere, but then they moved back to Spokane, all within a two-year period. I have one son still living in Seattle. The other four live within five minutes of us.
1: Oh, man. What a blessing. So, we
0: see the grandkids pretty much every week. Uh, we do some child care, but I'm still busy writing. We'll come back to that, I'm sure. And I mentor quite a few pastors in town and meet with alums and so on, and uh, work very part-time at Whitworth Stillmore as an external presence now. Mm. My wife is a mental health counselor, and she works two and a half days a week. So as I said, in this case, we had uh, kids, uh, uh, let's see, last weekend from Thursday to Tuesday, the two oldest ones stayed here, and then in between Friday to, to Sunday, we had uh, an, an additional two and a half year old and seven month old here, so we have a lot of people cycle, cycling through. So you you wow. get help, it works, huh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I would think it keeps you on your toes. Yeah, uh, it does indeed. Yes, uh huh. What a blessing to have everybody move back. You're such a magnet, Jerry. I guess everybody just needed to, to. I
0: think I'm, I think I'm cheap childcare is what it amounts to. <laughs>
1: That's right. Really, well, you really
0: <laughs> had a good experience growing up in Spokane. I call it um, a big city that has a small feel to it. Mm-hmm. And rather than living in Seattle or San Francisco or even Phoenix, you can actually have an impact on this city because it, uh, the city proper has about 200,000. The county has about 400,000. So it's a smaller metropolitan area, but uh, it's small enough that the church Christians can actually have an impact. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad they're back. Yeah, it's nice. Not only a bat, but three out of the four go to the same church that we go to. So it's mm. real weird. We all sit in the same bench together. It feels a little unhealthy, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm not complaining.
1: Yeah, I think it sounds beautiful. It really does. Well, what are we eating today, Greg? Yeah, we got some uh, some burritos. Jerry's putting us to shame. Uh, we have breakfast burritos. They are from a relatively healthy place, and they're not too bad. Um Salad and Go is a local chain here that's a drive-through salad place, and they also have burritos. Very inexpensive, uh, very delicious. And I will share, since Jerry shared his recipe, I'll share my little tip and trick of the trade. If you're listening here from Phoenix, Arizona, I often, one day a week, will, will drive through Salad and Go, get breakfast and lunch at the same time. I'll buy a breakfast burrito. And a salad for lunch, and usually a coffee as well. And for just twelve dollars, you can have breakfast and lunch, and you can also get that under a thousand calories. Uh, so,
0: wow, that's very impressive. Well done. Yeah.
1: yeah. So that's that's my trick. That yeah. And 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 I got my exact order. Ted asked me what I wanted. I got traditional burrito here with uh, just bacon, eggs, and. Etc. cetera. Yeah. And my,
2: mine is a Southwest burrito. So we're going to take a break here in a second, and then we'll let you know how the meal was. But I can tell you from my standpoint, these burritos are $3.14, <laughs> yeah. and it, does, it doesn't even have to taste good for that price. That's right. You know? But I have a feeling... Crazy.
0: Is there cardboard mixed in with them? Um, uh, we don't ask
1: questions, Jerry. We just we just open our mouths and, and, and eat, pay with our wallets. Yeah. I have
2: a feel it's going to be good. So we're going to take a break and then uh, we will be back with, uh, with Jerry.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Taste and See podcast, a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. Our vision for the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona is to create space for leaders
2: and learners to grow in deeping intimacy with God. Check out sfsaz.org for more information and
0: resources and consider joining us at an upcoming event. Now back to the podcast.
1: And we are back. And I want to say that was the standard and very good. Yeah. Excellent burrito was, from was, Salad and Go. And it wasn't too I've good. never had the Southwest. It was that, good. Yeah. It was good. And I had the green... Salsa, which was excellent. Okay, I, I opted for red salsa. Yeah, yeah that's just a little bit of me and Ted being different. Or we right? could
2: do New Mexico, and you do both, <laughs> right? right? You do red
1: the and Christmas, Green. Christmas, Christ- Christmas. There you go. Is what they call it. So it was good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. So get your Arizonans, get your salad and go. It's a good, it's a good company. Jerry, you've had the same smoothie. How many? How long have you been eat, uh, drinking that same smoothie? And and how was it today?
0: Uh, and right. I, I I vary it from. Uh, Day to day to some degree. I always use frozen bananas. We buy a bunch of organic bananas, cut them in half, freeze them, and then throw a couple of halves in. And then we'll usually throw in some frozen berries and some fresh berries. So it makes it just a little bit colder and a little more foamy.
2: I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think maybe next time for our podcast, we're
1: gonna to have to get smoothies. I I think we'll need the detox from some of these, yeah, yeah. these heavy breakfasts that we keep having.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, again, it's so it's so good to have you. And I wanna I wanna read a quote from uh from Water from a Deep Well, just as a way to segue into some questions uh that that we have. And um, I have, I've just over the years enjoyed so much um, your work with Water from a Deep Well of, of looking at Christian spirituality from, uh, you know, from the earliest times all the way um, up until current, current day. And in the introduction, you said this, history can be a valuable resource for us, especially in the spiritual life. For it provides examples of how believers who lived in other times and places understood what it means to seek, know, and experience God. So we, we'd love to um pick your brain a little bit, uh hear hear your heart, your um your perspective on are, are there in particular some Maybe people or periods that you feel like uh, could be really instructive as we think about the dynamics of what's happening in the church today.
0: Well, it's always dangerous to ask a question of somebody who's a trained church historian. That's how I make my living. Um, so you're going to have to cut me off or redirect me because I I am capable of going on riffs that last a while here. <laughs> anyway, I would say uh, I'm going to answer it this way, um, uh, Ted. That the early Christian period is absolutely foundational for how we understand and how we function as Christians, even to this day. And here's why: for about the first 300 years of church history the grew the church grew up absolutely independently from any kind of larger social and especially political entity. Now, they had to figure out how to function in the Roman world, which they did, um, but they never over-accommodated to the uh, Roman world, or they would have been absorbed by Rome. Rome had this amazing capacity to absorb new religious movements into itself. And in the in the process, domesticate it, make it subservient to Rome. Uh, Though one exception were were the Jews. But the Jews learned how to survive largely by remaining isolated, which was the reason why it didn't have the kind of cultural impact that Christianity had in the Roman world. Through kosher laws and circumcision, dress codes and so on, they remained fairly isolated from the larger empire. Rome actually respected Jews. And and honored it because of its kind of ancient tradition and its high moral uh, kind of uh, code of ethics. Um, but uh, Rome didn't feel threatened by uh, Judaism largely because they were so identifiable. It's like having people wearing a, a football jersey of or something like that. You can just spot them right away. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't true of Christians. So think about this: for about three hundred years, the Christian movement born in the city of Jerusalem, grew into the entire Mediterranean world and east past Syria and beyond through the Fertile Crescent and down the Nile River in three major continental directions. Within that 300 years, they began operating in, I don't know how many different languages, 10 maybe, 15, and uh, developed its canon, its... its. Uh, basic practices, its worship life, its offices, Mm. uh, its uh, uh, capacity to serve the larger society, uh, its uh, doctrine, belief system, practices, all of that without any form of Roman interference. Mm. And that's the foundation we're still built on today. We call it the Orthodox tradition with a small O, or what I call the great tradition of historic Christian faith. Pretty much everything that they decided over a 300-year period of time is still foundational for all the rest of us. Mm. And here's the thing that's amazing to me, is that they they could have accommodated to win uh, Rome's approval, but they resisted that. They could have isolated to preserve their own sense of unique identity, and they didn't do that either. Instead, they immersed themselves in the culture without drowning in it. They adapted without becoming captive. Hmm. That is so amazing, so impressive, and so moving to me that over that long a period of time, facing suspicion, hostility, on, and on occasion persecution, they were able to survive.
2: Wow. And so, I, yeah. so let me let me jump in. Um, you you said I could, so I'm going to jump in. <laughs> no, no, please, <laughs> um, and, and believe me, just all you're sharing is so helpful. But what what I'm hearing there is not giving into accommodation and not giving into isolation. Mm-hmm. Correct. And it kind of leaves you in this messy sort of space in the middle to to work that out. And and are you is part of what you're saying is that that's even something that today would be really instructive? Uh, well, yes, it is. Uh, uh, let me uh, add this, that
0: uh, in a, a very fine second century document called the so-called Letter to Dognetus. it's a very short, I think it's probably the first apologetic uh, work written. It's only about 15 pages long. So it's short, it's elegant, you can tell that whoever wrote it was highly educated We don't know when to date it. Most scholars would put it around the year 150. I would agree with that for certain uh, reasons. But that document begins by calling the Christian movement uh, a new way or a third way or producing a third race of people. Mm. And Rome recognized that language. In fact, the, the recipient of the letter, most likely a Roman official, knows the the unusual reputation of the Christian movement because it wasn't like the first way, the Roman way, the way of the majority culture. It wasn't like the second way, the Jewish way. It was a third way or producing a third race of people. I actually wrote a book about that two years ago called uh, Resilient Faith, How the Early Christian Third Way Changed the World. And it's about the uniqueness of this period. And that's where I make the argument that they figured out how to adapt to the culture without compromising. Not accommodation, not isolation, but immersion into the culture. And that's by far the most difficult thing to do. Um, it, it's easy to accommodate. We see all kinds of examples of that In American society right now, you can do it to the left or you can do it to the right. You can be woke. You can be Christian nationalist. Um, It's easy to isolate. Just stand back, kind of create your own little uh, subculture of Christian schools and Christian this and Christian that until you don't know how to relate to the larger culture and all the ambiguity and challenges that that presents. But the early Christian movement, for the most part, there were exceptions, obviously, for the most part, chose this unusual, quote, third way, producing a third race of people. Dognitas puts it this way. He said, Christians dress like everybody else. They speak the same language. They shop in the same markets. Uh, They live in the same dwellings. They live in the same neighborhoods as everybody else does. And yet, everything about them indicates they belong to a, quote, new commonwealth. Mm. In the Greek, it's oikumene. And Rome called itself the Commonwealth. And here's this little the movement that comes along and says, well, actually, no, we're a commonwealth
1: too. Just a very different kind. Mm. It's a kingdom commonwealth. Mm. I have so many thoughts, but I wonder, um, I think one of the things that we want to do is is look at, different periods of the church and try to understand what God was doing during that how much how much romance should we have towards you know certain periods of the church versus recognizing that God develops and and changes and builds his church you know in in different ways and uh, I mean I I'm I'm 100% with you I preach on you know Acts chapter 2 uh, a series on devoted you know they the, they were devoted to the apostles teaching they were devoted to the prayers and having everything in common and the early church, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I wonder about is just how how do we, um, how do we properly honor that? Um, how do we properly see that, that we are in a different place, too? And, and how do you deal with some of those questions of getting back to it versus kind of honoring that it's the foundation, I guess?
0: Well, the, the apostolic period is the foundation. Not the early Christian movement; it's the apostolic period. Wow. I'm looking at two pastors here. Do either one of you ever want to be pastors at the church in Corinth?
1: <laughs> <laughs> they, oh, that's a yeah. hard pass, Jerry. Hard pass.
0: <laughs> no, I mean obviously, there's no golden age in the entire history of Christianity. Uh, the church, the church changes, the church accommodates, the church grows and fits and starts. Uh, some of the darkest periods have produced some of the best renewal movements. Hmm. And even, even in the early Christian period, you saw uh, a terrible anti-Judaism, for example. Um, the early Christian movement tended toward legalism, sometimes viciously so. Uh, they glorified martyrdom in a way that was unhealthy. I mean, there were many features in the early Christian period, those first 300-some years, um, that that indicated a lack of health. But there are still things to learn. We can learn from the apostolic period, even though we're not pastoring the same kinds of churches in the same cultural location. And I mean, look at the break that occurred between Paul and Barnabas as an example of a dark period in the early Christian movement. There are many like that. The church in Corinth kind of wrote the, wrote the playbook on church unhealth. So we, we need to be careful. No golden age. Having said that, we mine history to learn the cautionary tales that are told, but also to learn the things that we could, with a certain kind of cultural translation, dust off and still apply to our period. Hmm. And I think the first early Christian period is especially relevant because they were operating in a pre Christendom environment and we're slipping slowly into a post Christendom environment in the West. Europe is simply ahead of us for a number of uh, uh, cultural and political reasons. And so I think we can go back, and though they face some challenges we don't face, we also face some challenges they don't face because we have to bear the burden of the church's horrible reputation. Mm -hmm. And they didn't. They had an open landscape. Nothing had been written yet. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it made it easier for them Uh, than it does uh, for us. That long, long interim period of Christendom is definitely coming to an end. And I define Christendom as that period in which the Christian faith was the dominant religious force in uh, the Western world. Mm. And that has simply changed. And I think we need to recognize that. In fact, I'm going to make another comment about that. You know, Christendom emerged kind of as an idea in the fourth century with the emperor constantine where it was possible to think about a christian empire uh but then you know rome R- the roman empire collapsed in the fifth century and for the next 400 plus years uh, the church scrambled to figure out how to be uh, a force for good in uh, a world that was utterly chaotic mm-hmm. tribal invasions took place for centuries viking invasions the rise of islam Uh, in some cases, horrible weather, a natural disaster that took place in 536, that most historians kind of have an agreement it's probably the worst year in world history. Hmm. No one's ever heard of it. It was just catastrophically terrible. And in that period, uh, the the West was limping, less the Byzantine Empire, but certainly the Roman West was, was limping. And it's the church, especially the monastic movement, they put Western civilization on its shoulders and carried it for hundreds of years until we could have a more formal Christendom emerge around the year 1000 or two. Well, ever since then, we've been living in a cultural setting that assumes that assumes Christianity is the dominant religion. And the big project of Christendom was to Christianize it. Hmm. Now, Listen to the irony of that. The project of Christendom was to Christianize Christendom. That is to close the gap between an assumed, formalistic, sacramental, inherited faith and a faith that shows some signs of vitality, mission emphasis, and so on. And you see renewal movement after renewal movement, monastic renewal movements, Franciscans, Dominicans, third order movements, Brethren of the Common Life, uh, the Beguines, a certain movements within the Reformation, the Wesleyan movement, but all of them are still operating within a kind of Christendom setting. We simply need to close the gap between inherited faith and real authentic faith. The evangelical movement was birthed in the last period of this larger kind of Christendom arc of history. Mm. I even think the evangelical movement is running out of gas. Wow. And, and the reason why is because the evangelical movement was brilliant. I say that not at all cynically brilliant. I'm a product of the evangelical movement. I was converted at the age of 20. But it was brilliant in figuring out how to pick the lower fu- fruit of Christendom through conversion story, conversion narrative, personal Bible study, and um, more creative, adaptive, entrepreneurial churches and and nonprofit organizations, mm. and I think that's running out of gas. Wow! And so I think we have to go back to the playbook and think, okay, what can we do now in an environment that where the 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 uh, um, number of nuns is rising precipitously flat, fast, and all of the religious groups are barely holding their own or declining. When the one example being non-denoms. Mm. But non denoms are skimming a lot off of, of disillusioned evangelicals who are sick of superficiality, uh, Catholics, and mainline Protestants. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be harder for us to reach the lost if we're dealing with the generation that is one remove from the old uh, way of being a Christendom Christian.
1: So, what you're saying, I, there's so much richness in what you're saying. Thank you for sharing that, Jerry. I, I was just found myself wondering as you were talking, how do you feel, how do you feel about the end of Christendom? Uh, is that something that you, you grieve? Is that something that you— expect? Yes, I
0: do. I mean, I, yeah.
1: I, I, I think we have
0: to look at uh, Christendom uh, from a fairly neutral perspective. Uh, there are some ri- there's riches there. Did you guys go to college? Well, you went to a Christendom institution, didn't you? The university yeah. was a Christendom in- invention. Um, you're building. A, are you building a church or renovating a church? Renovating
1: an old church. Yeah.
0: Okay. There you go. That's a Christendom invention. I mean, uh, Christendom put up Gothic cathedrals. Christendom created universities. Christendom produced some of the most amazing literature in world history. Uh, Christendom produced works of art that are just breathtakingly beautiful. There's much in Christendom that we should celebrate its achievements have carried over to this age. We see them in art galleries. We read it in literature. We benefit from its institutions. We also have to recognize there was a dark side to Christendom. Religious wars, for example. The Crusades, the Inquisitions. um, A kind of moribund faith that was so deeply sacramentalized that the idea of it being owned and lived out in a more robust kind of way was simply not required not necessary and in many cases completely overlooked Mm -hmm. anything we carry from the past has got uh it's a mixed bag isn't it yeah and it doesn't in my mind strike me as wise for us to either trash it or idealize it i think it's best for us to say what can we learn both the side that's cautionary tale as well as the side that represents a rich heritage that we can carry over to this day so I, I look at Christendom as simply another phase in world history where Christianity was simply the dominant religious force.
2: So, so Jerry, when, when you're talking about the task of Christendom is to Christianize Christendom. One of them. I should say one of them. Was. Okay. Yeah. But, but it feels like as you share that, some, some light bulbs I think are going off in my brain, that <clears throat> that that has been the mindset that That is how, in so many ways, churches have thought about and Christians have thought about things, um, even in the midst of a vibrant personal faith, a lot of times they're thinking on that level. Yeah. um what how how would you describe or what would you see going forward would be the the new mindset that is going to be more? faithful, I guess you could say, to where we are. Yeah. Well, I mean, this will be
0: music to your ears, Ted, but honestly, I think anything along the lines of a formation understanding of the Christian movement is probably the way we're going to need to go. However trendy that is, I think there's legitimacy to it. I, I was on a, a Zoom call with a group of uh, um, uh, Church of England pastors last week and the lead pastor there, what we call him lead pastor, I think it's a vicar, or the rector there, uh, he he uh, planted the church, and he's now involved in a, a much larger church planning movement in the Church of England. And they've used Alpha, uh, uh, obviously, but they realize that they're going to have to do deeper, more formational work because they're not inheriting people that carry the traditional Christendom script into church life. That is, um, Christendom, even if people didn't know much, they still inherited a kind of cultural script. What was that? A, a, A narrative understanding of the Bible. They knew something about Genesis to Revelation, something about the larger story. They also had some theological categories in their mind. Creation, fall, redemption, for example, sin, forgiveness, those kinds of things. Uh, Every time they went to confession or they went to take the Eucharist, they were were acting that out, uh, so so to speak. And um, so in the case of of the the renewal movements within Christendom, it was simply helping people own what they already kind of inherently um, um, habitually knew. It was there somewhere, those categories, those stories, all that sort of thing. I don't think we can assume it anymore, at least not to the same degree. So we have to start farther back. Now, this is why the early Christian movement has something to teach us. Imagine what it would be like to do evangelism in the city of Ephesus in the year 125 or 175 or 225. You're meeting a population. Now they've reached far beyond the walls of Judaism. They're reaching genuine pagans. Uh, that is outsiders. Uh, they didn't know the story. They had never heard of Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, Esther, Ruth, uh, but they didn't know the categories either. They didn't, know a cat- they didn't have a category of morality that came out of religion. They didn't have a category of creation, fall, redemption. So what do you do to evangelize people like that? Can you just do an altar call? It wouldn't work. So they actually started, in the early Christian movement, the formational process before they were officially called Christian. Um, And that formational work uh, uh, took place for two to three years before they submitted to baptism and took their first Eucharist. It was called the Catechumenate. It was highly relational, they had a mentor, a sponsor, there was teaching involved. But it, it really uh, required catechumens, as they were called, they were officially enrolled, to do life with uh, an established believer for two to three years before they became official church members. Imagine that. But when you think about it, what other alternative did they have? Mm-hmm. Because the people knew nothing. And I, I, I actually designed a new catechumen at, uh, at my work at Whitworth that's a three-year, a two-year training process that's trying to get at the same kind of thing where it's highly relational, it's applied. You don't learn more than you do. You do and learn and do and learn together, and you all do it in relationship. You know, you've heard the phrase believing, belonging, behaving, and we need to recognize that all of that should be part of an integrated, seamless whole. Uh, the, The catechism was knowing but we need to not just know we need to do practice so i think anything along those lines of a formational approach that borrows from early earlier historical movements uh is is a good place to start and you know it's happening all over the place i mean the the notion of a rule of life now is kind of pop and and positive a better understanding of healthy rhythms of life, uh, rhythms in life. That's monastic, by the way. Both of those are monastic. So we're borrowing from the the great monastic tradition and so on and so forth so that we're we're more self-conscious about actually forming people in the faith or, as Jesus put it in the Great Commission, making disciples.
1: Right. I think people, maybe especially in our audience who would listen to this, who are spiritual directors or leaders, we're accustomed to think of thinking of spiritual formation as as kind of a, a way of becoming a more deep Christian or like a, a you know a uh, kind of understanding our story and certainly those things are um, are part of it. But what I hear you saying is, it's formation can be mission as well. It's not. Oh, just- I, I think it's going to
0: have to be. I think. Uh, The evangelical movement had a kind of before and after experience that it emphasized. Again, I'm not cynical about that. I I think it it worked marvelously for two centuries. And you would have a kind of emotive personal experience where you own the faith for yourself and then stepped into the Christian world as a new convert. Sometimes you were baptized, sometimes you didn't need to be baptized, depending on what the what the uh, tradition was. So it was the altar call, it was the conversion experience that drew that line over which you crossed into the Christian fold. In the early Christian movement, it was the sacraments, but the sacraments were administered after you went through a training process. So they didn't, they, even if they practiced infant baptism, and there's some pretty good evidence they probably did The 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 basic rate or or, or the basic group of people they were reaching were adult pagans. And then those adult pagans would simply drag their children with them. See, obviously, in the Middle Ages, it was different because everybody was baptized as an infant Mm -hmm. and it became kind of standard practice. That's how you became a Christian when you were an infant through a sacramental process. I I think it was far more integrated in the early Christian period than it was either in the middle ages or even in the evangelical movement today.
1: This, this is not a question. It's more of just a comment and I'll turn it over to Ted after that, but I'm just thankful to hear you reflect on um, giving Thanksgiving for the evangelical movement. And, you know, it's, it's very tempting for many of us of a certain age or maybe of a certain background to be burned by those things and to, you know, Move towards the more, uh, you know, what's called deconstruction or whatever that that might be, uh, to just throw it completely in the in the trash can. And and by the way, if you're if you're struggling with that, if that's been your experience, then I understand how how you could be you know burned by those things. But I, I just I just wanted to comment and say it's it's a beautiful thing to say. This is what the early church did, its values, its detriments, right? And here's what the evangelical church brought to the fore end, but it was also lacking some things, too. And just to kind of have that gentle way of looking at, at history where we, we see God at, God at work, but also us screwing up, right? And, and, but, but, just, but noticing it, you know, which I think is beautiful.
0: But what tradition doesn't have something to apologize for? Mm. Uh, there isn't any and what tradition doesn't have things that they ca- that they have deep within them that they can teach to the larger church i mean i am a product of the evangelical movement uh, I, I lectured to a, a group of uh, uh, assemblies of god pastors a, a few months ago about 60 of them and i just began by telling my evangelical story to say look i'm i'm a product of this movement i had a conversion experience at the age of 20 I began to memorize scripture shortly after that, thinking that that's just the norm. I joined a Bible study right away. I was mentored by somebody, kind of the nav nav thing. Uh, I was affected by inner varsity. I read good Christian books. I mean, the whole bit. And I haven't outgrown any of that. I still memorize the Bible, and I'm 72 years old. I mean, it's so deep within me, and I'm so grateful for that. I still have a personal faith. I'm grateful for that, too. I think a Christian is wise who is a a smart scavenger. And so even though my foundation has been the evangelical movement, I also recognize that it tends to be superficial. It's got a fairly shallow root system. And the Anglican, we can drive that root system deeper by borrowing from other times of church history that have some things to, to teach us about a deeper root system. I, I mean, I'm going to use the uh, Wesleys as an example. Uh, they were kind of the founders of the evangelical movement, along with George Whitfield and some others. Open-air preaching, altar calls, uh, popular songs to sing. Now we look at it as traditional music. Back then, it was contemporary music. And yet, John and Charles Wesley both died Anglicans. The movement did not split off until after they were in the ground, and John Wesley died in 1791. They used the Book of Common Prayer every day of their lives. And they were evangelical. So I think we can add to our portfolio. We can, wow. we can drive our root system deeper without, quote, uh, outgrowing something that still has vitality and good reason behind it. So, no, I'm, I'm a card-carrying evangelical. <laughs> I'm also Catholic right An orthodox i did an interview with an orthodox priest a few years ago i actually when i was being interviewed for water from a deep well i did a lot of interviews uh in the er- earlier days of that uh, book and at the end of it it was two hours he said to me you know you're one of us you just won't admit it <laughs> And I said to him, I'm kind of hoping you're going to be one of us, too. You know, <laughs> it was very playful. It was a fun, fun moment.
2: Well, Jerry, it's it's about time that we bring this to a close. But I just want to thank you so much. Um, I'm going to be chewing on uh, so much of what you shared in the days ahead. And I know our listeners are encouraged by your wisdom and perspective and uh You know, and just thinking about that question of the church is dying or is it in light of our conversation today, I'm thinking what people are are saying with that statement of the church is dying. um, In some ways, it feels like what they're saying is it really they're they're conflating that with Christendom. Um, Hmm. That's what's changing. That's what's dying. And that's why then we say, or is it? to come back to that reality that the church and Christendom are not the same, are not the same thing.
0: No, they're not at all. And um, I'm not mourning. I'm not celebrating. I'm saying simply our circumstances are different now than they were 200 years ago or 800 years ago. And we need to discern God's call in our life to be faithful followers of Jesus and committed members of the church to do our work in our unique uh, period of, of, of history. But the church has always had to do that. I mean, we've been producing renewal movements and entrepreneurial experiments now for 2,000 years. And some miss the mark, some fail, some are very short-lived. I think the megachurch movement is, from an historical point of view, probably going to be fairly short-lived some have lasted hundreds and hundreds of years, the monastic movement, for example. But we're always trying to go figure out what what does it mean for us to be faithful? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus? And out of that, we are always producing um, new things as well as using and borrowing from the old. Wise is the householder who brings out of his household both what is new and what is old. Hmm we sing oh. hymns that are 300 years old and we write hymns that are new today we do both and we
2: should do both yeah and i love that question um mm-hmm. what does it mean to follow jesus right now where we are mm-hmm. and and it feels to me like if 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 as followers of jesus as leaders in the church as spiritual directors whatever our uh Our place is to keep that question. What does it mean to follow Jesus and not think that we know right now? But Mm -hmm. that that feels like that keeps us in a very humble, discerning place where we're dependent on Jesus to tell us how to follow him rather than us thinking we know.
0: know. I made my living in the academic world for a long time, but I've also been a church guy. So I'll lecture on college campuses, and then I'll do conferences for pastors. That's kind of my zone, that bridge between those two worlds. Mm. And uh, from the academic side of things, our besetting sin is cynicism. That is that we know better than most other people, and, and so we can kind of be perched at a place of criticism, but then we never do anything about it. So I'm aware of that, the danger of cynicism. All of us should be. It's a sin. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, neither should we become over-accommodated with the culture, too. So we, we have our work cut out for us. It's an exciting, in my mind, it's an exciting uh, time to live because I think we've got opportunities we're yet to dis- we have yet to discover in this period of transition. I think it's a big transition in the history of the church in
1: the West. Thank you for modeling that uh, so well, Jerry. And thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot to chew on here. And um, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, uh, for listening in uh, eight episodes in to this podcast. We're so grateful for you. We want to serve and help you. Uh, so, Ted, maybe what's, what's a way that people can find out more about our ministry? Well, as
2: always, you can go to our website at sfsaz.org. And uh, if you're looking for a spiritual director, uh, you can find a great listing of directors there or just other um, events, retreats, things that we have um, going on. encourage you to uh, to check that out. And um, again, thank you for being with us and we'll see you next time.